celebrating baptisms and welcoming new members is one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. Um, That and celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper every month with all of you, are the two highlights in many ways of my pastoral life. So, so glad you got to share today and share this with all of us. What is our problem as people? Sometimes people ask that. What's your problem, right? What is our problem? Every philosophy, every worldview, every political movement, every religion tries to answer that question. What is our problem? What is at the heart of the human condition? What's the cause of suffering in the world? Why do we all make bad decisions even when we know they're bad decisions and we still make them? What is our problem? Some say our problem is ignorance, that we need education. Others, that it's social or economic oppression. Some say our problem is our attachment to the things in this world. Others, that it's not being in touch with our true inner self. What exactly is our problem? Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. In the Christian calendar, Lent is the season that leads up to Easter. It's a season of preparation as we prepare ourselves for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And Christians of various church traditions, including our own Reformed tradition, have observed Lent for centuries. In fact, the season of Lent is actually more ancient than the celebration of Christmas, if you go back in church history. And our Lenten series this year is called Welcome to the Story. We're going to spend five weeks exploring the story of the Exodus from the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is 40 chapters long, so we're obviously not going to cover everything in five weeks. Instead, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus on those parts of the Exodus story that the New Testament explicitly connects to our experience of salvation through our faith in Jesus. And today we start with the question, what is our problem? We are going to see that we share in the story of Israel's plight. Israel's plight in Egypt is our plight. Israel's plight in the Exodus story exposes the root of the human condition. In Israel's plight, we can find at least the beginning of an answer to why we suffer, why bad things happen in our world, why we all have a tendency, a bent to do things that we know are wrong and that hurt other people, and why life can be so hard sometimes. So from Exodus chapter 1 and from Colossians chapter 1, We're going to look at our plight today. So if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word, beginning in Exodus 1, verses 8 through 14. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Egyptians, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, 
or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And then Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You can be seated. Let's start by playing a little catch-up in this story. Back in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God promised that he would bless the descendants of a couple named Abraham and Sarah, and that God would make their descendants into a great nation, and ultimately, this nation that would descend from Abraham and Sarah would bring salvation to all the nations of the world, to the rest of the world. God reaffirmed this promise to Abraham and Sarah's son Isaac and to their grandson Jacob. And when Jacob became an adult, God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. But Jacob, Israel's family, was a mess. This family of 12 sons and one daughter was characterized by betrayal, jealousy, and deception. To the point that 10 of Israel's sons conspired to sell their younger brother Joseph as a slave. And Joseph ended up as a slave in Egypt. As you can imagine, he suffered greatly there. But God was with Joseph. And gradually, even though he was a slave at the bottom of the ladder, Joseph rose to prominence to become even more um, second only in authority to the king of Egypt himself, to the Pharaoh. And God used Joseph to help Egypt prepare for a worldwide famine, the worst they had seen in a generation, that would have destroyed the nation of Egypt without Joseph's foresight, management, and insight. And when that famine finally came, Joseph reconciled with his brothers and invited all of his family, all of Israel, to come and to live in Egypt during this famine so they could survive and not die. God used Joseph's presence in Egypt to preserve Israel, to keep God's plan of salvation alive, as Joseph would say to his brothers at the end of Genesis, what you intended for evil God meant for good to save many lives. 
And Israel stayed in Egypt for many, many, many generations after that famine had passed and after Joseph and his brothers had died. And that brings us to our reading today from Exodus 1. A new king takes the throne in Egypt, likely a whole new dynasty of kings. And this new king doesn't remember Joseph or appreciate what Joseph had done to save the Egyptian people from starving to death many years earlier. Now, the book of Exodus never tells us the name of this new king. He's called Pharaoh, but that is simply an Egyptian title for king. That's what Pharaoh means. And throughout Exodus, the Pharaoh represents every force in our world that opposes God's plan and seeks to destroy people. As Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann says, it doesn't matter which pharaoh it is because if you've seen one pharaoh, you've seen them all. This new pharaoh is motivated by his fear. God has been blessing the Israelite people with children and their population keeps growing, which is a fulfillment of the promise that God had made Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis, that they would grow into this great nation. But that was causing Pharaoh to be afraid. Afraid that Israel would grow so large that they would become a threat afraid that they'd eventually join forces with Israel's enemies, afraid that they would eventually leave Egypt entirely. And Pharaoh acts out of his fear, and his actions ironically lead to the very thing that he is afraid of, Israel leaving. Isn't that the way it often is? You ever met someone who's so afraid that their boyfriend or girlfriend will leave them, that they act in ways that are smothering or controlling or distrustful or jealous, which leads to the very thing that they're afraid of? The Pharaoh's motivated by his fear. And this new Pharaoh tells the Egyptian people that they must be shrewd with the Israelites because they're growing so large. And so he creates a new Egyptian government policy that puts slave masters over the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are conscripted into slavery for the state and forced to work in the fields and to build Egypt's cities. Many of the wonders of the ancient world, like Egypt's great pyramids and the Sphinx, were built on the backs of slaves like these ancient Hebrews. The Egyptian government worked the people ruthlessly. Verse 12 says that the new Pharaoh's policy caused all of the people of Egypt to dread the Israelites. And the Hebrew word dread, it's a very strong word in verse 12. It means to despise, to experience disgust for something. The, the new Pharaoh's words and policies inspired all of the Hebrew people to hate, or all of the Egyptian people to hate the Israelites. This hatred was racial, it was cultural, it was religious, because the Israelites looked differently than the Egyptians. They spoke a different language, they had different customs, they worshiped a different God, and these differences all fueled Egyptian hatred 
towards the Israelites. So the Egyptians, the government and the people of this generation made the lives of the Israelites bitter, filled with suffering and anguish. And if you keep reading, the policies eventually lead to violence and to murder. This was Israel's plight. How far this must have seen from the promises that God had given Abraham and Sarah in Genesis. The promise that God would bless Israel, that those who blessed Israel would be blessed, and those who cursed Israel would be cursed, and the promise that through Israel, all the nations of the world, including Egypt, would experience God's blessing. The promise that God had elected Israel out of all the nations to bring salvation to all the nations of the world. In the days of Joseph, God had brought Israel to Egypt to save them as a people and to keep his plan moving forward. Refuge in Egypt in the days of Joseph meant survival. It meant keeping God's plan and promises alive. But over time, what had been a blessing had become a curse. Provision had become enslavement. Survival had become servitude. What Israel experienced in Egypt was not unlike early American slavery. The cruelty and the violence, the abuse, the, the family separations, the lynchings, the hatred. Is it any wonder that when Christian missionaries introduced African slaves to the Christian faith and to the Bible, that this was the story that they most identified? They could see their experience in the experience of the Israelites, their suffering and the suffering of these Hebrew slaves. Second only to the story of Jesus himself, no other part of the Bible has been more influential in the emergence of the historically black church in America than this story, the story of the Exodus. But this is also every Christian's story. Israel's plight is everyone's plight. And that's Paul's point in Colossians chapter 1. Bible scholar N.T. Wright says that nearly all Bible scholars now agree that those verses I read from Colossians 1 are evoking the Exodus story as the backdrop for our experience of salvation through Jesus. Being rescued from one domain, being redeemed and brought into a new kingdom. That was the Exodus story. Pharaoh's Egypt is pictured in Colossians 1.13 as the domain of darkness, a place of suffering and, and evil, of hatred and death and violence. One Bible scholar, David Garland, says the domain of darkness in Colossians 1 is like C.S. Lewis's description of Narnia, where it's always winter, but Christmas never comes. But through Jesus, God has rescued us out of the domain of darkness, out of Pharaoh's Egypt, and brought us into a new realm, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God's own son. This is our Exodus story. And verse 14 says that in Jesus, we have redemption. Now, the word redemption and redeem, it occurs more than 130 different times in the Bible, but we often don't stop and think about what it means. 
The word redemption originally described the price someone would pay in order to purchase a slave's freedom. And in the Bible, the word redeem and redemption is nearly always shorthand for the Exodus story. Here's a definition of redemption. God's act of paying the price to set people free so they now belong to him. Paying the price to set people free. As God redeems Israel from their slavery in Egypt, through Jesus, God redeems us from the domain of darkness. As God pays the price for Israel to go free, God pays the price for us to be forgiven. And as Israel became God's own cherished people through Jesus, we become part of the people of God as well. Their story is our story. Their plight is our plight. Let me mention three brief ways that this is true. First, we are all held captive by our own sins. All of us, we are held captive by our own sins. What's our problem? The Christian faith says at the very heart of the human problem is the problem of sin. Now, the Bible describes sin in a lot of different ways. A Reformed theologian named Cornelius Plantiga says that sin in the Bible is missing the mark, wandering from the path, straying from the family, hardening the heart, refusing to listen. Sin is pictured as a stiff neck and blind eyes, as a beast crouching at the door ready to pounce on us, as a deadly virus that will infect us and kill us. Sin is more than making mistakes or doing bad things. It's the entire condition. It's a state of being. It's a power that enslaves us. And one way that Christians have read the Exodus story through the centuries is to see it as an allegory of our misuse of our free will as human beings. God created us with a capacity to make free decisions, to choose good and evil, right and wrong, but we misused that freedom. And what was given to us to be a blessing is turned into a curse, like someone who's become tangled up in the consequences of their own addiction. The misuse of our freedom has held us captive to the power of sin. And now we can't break free. We're captive to sin's power. Just as Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites, we have become enslaved by our own decisions. And now we're bound to habits, destructive personality patterns, and addictions that we cannot break free from on our own. We are held captive to the power of sin. And the season of Lent is a time for us to reflect on the ways we are still held captive. When we trust in Jesus, we are forgiven. I love the imagery of baptism, that we have died to our sin and we rise to new life. We are forgiven, yet we are not yet free of the power of sin in our lives. And so during Lent, we ask God, God, what habits am I still bound to that hurt other people, destroy myself, and dishonor you? What destructive personality patterns are so deeply ingrained in me that I don't even notice them anymore. 
We look inwardly for these things, not to condemn ourselves or despair, but to honestly look at these things during Lent, to invite God into those dark reaches of our hearts for him to do his work of transformation and healing. There's a second way Israel's plight is our own. Like Israel, we are oppressed by the tyranny of evil. Oppressed by the tyranny of evil. The Bible says that evil is real and that it's personal. There's an unseen realm of evil that actively opposes God and all that God wants to do in your life and in the world. This unseen realm of evil fed Pharaoh's fears, leading him to a campaign of hatred against the Israelites. This unseen realm of evil inspired the Pharaoh to adopt policies that were cruel and ruthless and violent and ultimately led him to murder. This unseen realm of evil inspired the Egyptian people to despise and dread the people of Israel. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, in the introduction, Lewis says that we make two equal and opposite errors when it comes to this unseen realm of evil. He says the first error is to deny that it even exists in the first place. In our modern scientific world, it's tempting to deny the existence of an unseen realm of evil that opposes God. The second er error, says Lewis, is to believe it exists and then to have a really unhealthy interest in it. Lewis says that this unseen realm of the demonic is equally delighted with either error. There is an evil in our world. And this evil often expresses itself in political and social and economic systems that privilege some people and oppress other people. Like slavery and Jim Crow laws in America or the caste system in India or the attempted genocide of the Uyghur people in China, or the Holocaust in Germany, or terrorists who flew airplanes into the World Trade Center. If you've went, met one pharaoh, you've met them all. Evil is real, just as real in our world today as it was in Pharaoh's Egypt. And Lent is a time when we look unflinchingly at the reality of evil in our world when we resist the urge to blink and look away, and instead we remind ourselves that evil is real and it terrorizes people, when we remind ourselves that only God can vanquish this kind of evil, that we can't conquer this kind of evil any more than the Israelites could conquer Egypt. And when people try to vanquish evil on their own, they often become like the very evil they're trying to destroy. Israel's plight is our plight. Finally, lastly, like Israel, we are enslaved by the inevitability of death. The inevitability of death. Pharaoh's policies ultimately lead to death. Death always follows sin and evil like a shadow. The Bible says that the wages of sin are death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. During the season of Lent, we contemplate death. We received ashes on Wednesday. 
to remind us that we come from dust and to dust we shall one day return. And to many people that, that may seem morbid or unhealthy to think about death. Most people avoid thinking about death at all costs. But you know, some more recent psychological studies have suggested that thinking honestly about our death actually helps us be more happy and well-adjusted in life. In fact, while studying for this week's message, I learned of something called death cafes. Never heard of them before. Death cafes are social gatherings around cake and tea to talk honestly about death and dying. The mission of death cafes are to increase awareness of death with a view to helping people make the most of their lives. According to the National Library of Medicine, death cafes are becoming increasingly popular in Europe, Australia, and the U.S. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Christians have been doing this for centuries during the season of Lent every year. We are enslaved by the inevitability of death. So the Exodus story is our story. Israel's plight is our plight. We are captive to the power of sin, to oppressed by the tyranny of evil, enslaved by the inevitability of death. Israel's experience in Egypt was horrible. It was oppressive. It was violent, and it was unjust. And we should never minimize the brutality of Israel's experience in Egypt. But their experience points a spotlight at the human condition, at the problem of sin, evil, and death. This unholy trinity of sin, evil, and death are what Jesus came to defeat. And so Lent dares us to confess our sins, to stare down evil, to reflect on our mortality without flinching. It invites us to welcome God into the darker reaches of our hearts and to reveal the areas that we still need to grow, that we still need the touch of God's healing holiness to be more like him. Lent invites us to refuse to minimize evil, but to watch and pray for Christ's victory over evil. And it helps us prepare our hearts to live well in light of Christ's resurrection. Today, we're so blessed to baptize three adults and one child, two in this service, two in the next service. Baptism is a sacrament that vividly reminds us of the reality of sin, evil, and death. Going into the water is like going into the grave, dying to sin and dying to our old way of life. And baptism reminds us that Christ came to save us, to forgive our sins, to deliver us from evil, to defeat death itself. And even as Jesus walked out of the grave three days later, when we come up out of the waters of baptism, we come sealed for a new life, belonging to Christ forever. This is our Exodus story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words from your scriptures. And thank you for those who became New Covenant partners today, for those who were baptized and who will be baptized, Lord. God, we are grateful. We remember our own baptism and what it means. And we remember the price that was paid to redeem us, to buy us back, to pay the price of Christ's own life 
in order to deliver us, to rescue us from the domain of darkness, to bring us into your kingdom. We love you, God, and we pray with gratitude today in Christ's name. Amen.